Welcome to the Pioneer Theater Podcast. I'm Matthew Ivan Bennett. Our season opener is Cagney with book by Peter Colley and music and lyrics by Robert Creighton and Christopher McGovern. I'm sure you know the actor James Cagney best from his turn as tough guys in movies like White Heat or Angels with Dirty Faces. But the musical we're about to open follows Cagney from his very first job as a female impersonator through his vaudeville years, his tours with the USO, and his testimony before the anti-communist Dees Committee. The show Cagney had successful runs off-Broadway and in Los Angeles. It now comes to Pioneer before its Broadway debut. It's a show that requires no context to be entertained by, but the context is fascinating nonetheless. To explore that context, I sat down with Dr. Andrew Nelson. He's the new chair for the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah. He's a leading authority on the Western genre and has published articles on everything from silent cinema to slasher films. He joins us today to talk about the Golden Age icon, James Cagney. Okay, I'm here with Andrew Nelson, the new chair from the Department of Film and Media Studies. Thank you for doing this. Happy to be here. So before we talk about James Cagney, could you give us some context for the golden age of Hollywood? His first movie was like 90 years ago at this point. So what was Hollywood and movie making like when he came along? Right. So 90 years is actually not a long time in the grand scheme of art. And I, I remind people this, that someday in the, in the future, that 90 years will be a single day of class. But right now, 90 years is a long time. So as much as there are a lot of continuities, there are some important differences between movie making now and then. So the, the golden age of Hollywood goes by a couple of different names. Sometimes it's called the studio era. Sometimes it's called classical Hollywood. But what we're talking about is the period that lasts from the late 1920s until the mid-1940s. So that's from cinema's transition to synchronized sound filmmaking up to the end of the Second World War. And this is a a really important time for the the history of the nation and the world, and that backdrop is important. So we could say that against a, a dramatic and in many ways traumatic backdrop that included a worldwide economic depression and the Second World War, a group of studios, film studios in Hollywood, um, consolidated their power industrially and began to elaborate procedures, both technical and stylistic, that enabled them to produce a product of very high quality, reliably, for an efficient cost. So this is the moment when uh, American cinema is at the height of its cultural and economic influence, when it's the, the primary entertainment of the American people. Uh, these studios had, had fended off some threats from radio in the 20s, which maybe seems a little odd that radio could be a threat to film. Right. But you know, the, the fear in, in the mid-20s, it's kind of an aside, but it's interesting, was that all of a sudden people would have this largely free entertainment in their home, and why would they leave to see the movies? And, of course, that sounds like an objection we hear many times since. We even hear that today. But that was the threat at the time, but that was kind of mitigated. And this is also a point before television. So motion pictures are the primary entertainment of the American people. So this is a moment when eight large film studios uh, control most of the motion picture industry. 
And they even owned the the theaters themselves. That's right. That's right. So the term we would use uh, for the industry, well, one would be vertical integration. So five of the eight studios not only made films and distributed them, they also owned many of the theaters that they would be exhibited in. And because the studios cooperated, they, they were... They were competitors in a sense, but they really formed an oligopoly where they cooperated. They were able to exert uh, significant power over independent exhibitors and in ways forced them to show whatever they wanted. So that, uh, that kind of control is, is something that eventually goes away. But that's the, that's the economic system in play. But it's also a, a moment that we remember as a very glamorous one. Uh, it's sort of the moment that we have a lot of nostalgia for when we think about old Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, big sedans, fur coats, top hats, tails. We're talking about this golden age of Hollywood with its you know, innumerable classic films, um, The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, Stagecoach, but also importantly for our, our subject today, uh, stars. Clark Gable, Joan Crawford, Gary Cooper, Shirley Temple, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, Humphrey, Bogart, just just to name a few. So Cagney is one of the first generation of stars in this classical Hollywood who who hadn't come out of the silent cinema, had come from somewhere else. And at that time, they signed contracts exclusively with studios. So they only did Warner Brothers picture or a Paramount picture. That's right. So one one way that the studios maintained control over the uh, the film industry was through what was called the um, the option or exclusive contract. So stars would sign a five or seven year deal with a particular studio, and those contracts would be reviewed every six months, and the studio would then have the option to renew it. And those contracts gave studios near total control over the, not only the careers, but in some ways the lives of their stars. Um, stars couldn't refuse a role. If they did, they could be suspended. Um, stars could be loaned out to other studios. Oftentimes there were strict controls over their, their public personas. Their names could be changed. Their appearance could be controlled. Sometimes the, the contracts would even include morals clauses that forbade certain types of activities. <laughs> they so. had to smoke a certain brand of cigarette. Or, exactly. Right. So, you know, the stars, and, and Cagney's an important part of this, of course, balked at the level of control that the studios exercised over their careers. But the studio's response was that developing stars was expensive, and there, were a, a lot, there was a lot of risk involved. So it was a way for them to control costs. And cost and control were, were two of the, the big things that the studios focused on. So what do you think explains the star power of James Cagney specifically? That's a great question because Cagney isn't, in retrospect, as easy to pigeonhole as some other stars in terms of being able to say, well, that's why he was popular. Obviously, being a movie star is is not a science. It's an art, and there are a lot of misses, let's say. And and Cagney is kind of a case in point because he and his wife actually came to Hollywood in the the mid-1920s hoping to break into show business, and it didn't work, and they end up going back to New York. So, you know, what was it about Cagney in 1924 that the studios weren't interested in compared to 1930? Fair question. In terms of his persona or, or what made him appealing, uh, one thing we might look at is the, the complexity uh, that he was able to, to imbue in what might otherwise have seemed like one-dimensional roles, sort of, you know, tough-talking gangster types. 
uh, was something that we remember him for. But when you actually watch the films, you realize there's a degree of nuance in the performance that I think resonated with audiences and enabled him to, to transcend the material in, in some ways, uh, especially bad guys. Come out and take it, you dirty yellow-bellied rat, or I'll give it to you through the door. Oh, oh please, Matt, listen to me, will you? Get away from me. Get away from me. I got you. So give it to you, too. Get away from that door. No. Get away from that door. What's probably the most famous scene from his breakout film, The, the Public Enemy, so his character, Tom Powers, uh, famously or infamously smashes a grapefruit into his girlfriend's face right. at breakfast. And that's in our show. Right, yes, as it yeah. should be. Uh, you know, it's an iconic scene. It's incredibly violent for the time. And you know, having shown this film to, to people today, it's still very visceral. But in, in spite of that violent act, the audience is still sympathetic towards his character. And I think that's part of the balance that he was able to strike as a performer. I mean, there's other things we might point to as well, that there was, cert- there was a certain sense that he was, he was authentic, that he drew upon his, his own upbringing, which was very difficult, and he was able to bring those experiences into his roles, that what we saw on screen was somehow a reflection of who he was, which is, was really important for Hollywood at that time. And then there's also the fact, and this is where it gets a little tricky, that there were these moments where he was able to play different types of roles that showcased his talents, like his singing and dancing, while still being able to transition back to being a tough guy. And so that is maybe a challenge when it comes to reconciling those two different aspects of his persona. And with singing and dancing, you're probably referring to Yankee Doodle Dandy. Sure. Where he plays yeah. George Cohen, right? That's, that's certainly the most famous, but he, he, he did make other musicals, um, some other very good musicals, some that we've forgotten, but some that are very good. Footlight Parade, Bus- Busby Berkeley movie from the 1930s, I think, is a, is a great early example of that. And he, he's coming out of, of vaudeville where singing and dancing were, were actually what he was doing. I mean, he sure. paid the bills by uh, running various dance studios at different points in his life. But that, you know, I, I, I suppose were it not for Yankee Doodle Dandy, you know, would, we, would we remember him as that? Would, would we have a Broadway musical performance of his life. I don't know. This may be unanswerable, <laughs> but who do you think is James Cagney today? <laughs> yeah. Huh. Great in question. In 2019. Yeah. You know, we, we obviously make jokes about performers being the triple threat. And the, the truth is that a lot of performers are triple threats in that way, but the, the landscape of media has changed such that there just isn't a lot of opportunities for movie stars to sing and dance anymore even though they can. So maybe someone like maybe someone like Hugh Jackman in oh, a way, yeah. right? So yeah. he can he can of course be Wolverine, <laughs> but then he can also be the greatest showman. Exactly. So, so that might be one thing, one equivalent case. Um, somebody else I might I might throw out and this is maybe from left field uh, would be Sylvester Stallone. And I I say that not because Stallone is known for his singing and dancing, but because Stallone's early roles, so if you watch you know, the first Rocky film or the first Rambo film, First okay. Blood, are actually quite, quite serious, you know, quite complex, and quite good movies in some ways. And Stallone himself is, is a, actually a very good filmmaker, a writer and director. He's a talented guy. But from those films, he was t- typecast as a certain type of role, and that was perhaps limiting in his career. So I think there's a, a kind of parallel to Cagney in that respect. I like those answers. In our production, 
of Cagney at Pioneer, there's this antagonism all throughout the script between Cagney and Jack Warner yeah. of Warner Brothers. Can you shed some light on that from a film history perspective? Sure. So uh, one question that I'm often asked when we talk about the golden age of Hollywood is, you know, viewers point to this cavalcade of hits. You can pick almost any year in that nearly you know, two-decade span and come up with 10 or 12 or, or 20 just classic films. And it's harder to do that today, you know, to look at a recent year and say, these 10 films are destined to become classics. So the question, you know, why don't they make them like they used to is, is often asked. And Partly they're making fewer films. <laughs> well, that, that is absolutely right. They're making a lot fewer films today. Um, and another way of answering the question is that the way they made those films is now illegal. Oh. So uh, one, one of the factors that brings an end to the, the golden age of Hollywood is a, a series of uh, legal rulings that are uh, against the major Hollywood studios, that they can't produce, distribute, and then exhibit their own films that that's actually a, a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. The Sherman Antitrust. That's right. Or they can't suspend actors indefinitely on their contract. Uh, Olivia de Havilland, actually, who we remember from playing uh, Sweet and Gentle Melanie, Gone with the Wind, was actually the, the, the primary actress who brought that case to trial. So and, and kind of liberated actors in the process. So the, the way that Hollywood worked, the way the golden age of Hollywood worked was technically in violation of a lot of laws that we have in place about monopolies and, and so on. Probably in terms of just working hours, too. Well, well, that, that too. And that, for, for Cagney, was a big thing. So Cagney, I mean, and this is maybe part of his legacy, too, is, is an important actor who advocated for fair compensation, that he would look at people working 10-hour days, 100 hours a week, and he would notice and he would point this out publicly, these tremendous pay disparities between the people at the top and the people not even at the bottom, close to the top. It could be you know, a difference between you know, $10,000 and $400, something like that. It's just, just ridiculous. So he was always vocal about being fairly, what he saw as fairly compensated for his work. And this is what led him to be in a kind of constant... Uh, state of conflict with Warner, who's uh, head of Warner Brothers at that time. So Cagney actually ends up leaving Warner Brothers on multiple occasions. Uh, in the 30s, he leaves and come back, comes back, I think, two times. And then he comes back to Warner Brothers again after having left for independent production in the 40s. And each time he comes back on more favorable terms to him. Yeah, I, think, I think in the script, Jack Warner has some epithet for him, calling him the great againster. The great againster. Right. That's right. And I don't know the exact origin of that, but that, that was his reputation. Um, and there are, there are other things that Cagney just, you know, wouldn't go along with, that, you know, there are some, you know, studio shenanigans where they would, the bosses would mandate that a, a certain amount of a performer's pay would be given to a certain political candidate. And Cagney would always be up front that he, he wasn't against supporting political causes. He wasn't against charity, but he wanted to do it on his own terms. And he, he was a generous man throughout his life, um, you know, supporting his, his family and his, his friends. So he was, he was very much about you know, controlling his career, getting what he was due, and then using his money in ways that he thought were best for, for him and his interests. 
Now, if you're a film buff, and you are, <laughs> what Cagney films have to be seen? Sure. Well, the top two would be uh, The Public Enemy and then Yankee Doodle Dandy. Um, that kind of gives you a sense of the range that Cagney had, but it also gives you a, a kind of a sense of the beginning and then really something towards the end of this, this period in Hollywood history. So you get you know, a really tough gangster film from the early 1930s, very controversial, that launches him to stardom. And then you get a kind of hyper-patriotic musical produced uh, after the, the bombing at Pearl Harbor. And that is a kind of interesting bookend yeah. to, to this period. So those would be the first two. And then beyond that, um, I would definitely recommend people seek out Footlight Parade. It's a, a terrific film. All of his talents are in full display. Okay. Uh, it's got Joan Blondell and uh, Ruby Keeler, who is just amazing in it. Some of his other gangster pictures, uh, Angels with Dirty Faces and White Heat would be the two you'd want to look at. And then if you wanted some more maybe obscure, slightly more obscure choices from later in his career, uh, I would recommend a Tribute to a Bad Man, which is a, a Western from the 50s directed by the great Robert Wise, where um, Cagney plays a kind of aging land baron. He didn't make a lot of Westerns, and I'm partial to Westerns. So I, th I think that's a, a kind of great overlooked film. And I, and I guess one more would be from later in his film career, Man of a Thousand Faces. It's a, a Lon Chaney biopic. It's also a, a really terrific performance that shows off Cagney's really amazing range. Andrew Nelson, thank you for doing this. My pleasure. I'll see you at the movies. Thank you for listening to the Pioneer Theatre Podcast for Cagney. For tickets, call 801-581-6961 or visit our website, pioneertheater.org. The show runs September 20th to October 5th. Cagney is sponsored by Zions Bank and the Wanda and Carvel Matson Memorial Fund. Thanks are also due to Robert J. Nelson and the University of Utah hosting us here in their audio studio at the J. Willard Marriott Library. Please subscribe to the Pioneer Theatre Podcast on Apple or find episodes on Buzzsprout or, of course, on our website, pioneertheatre.org.